This is the Jason Hill Show, and I am Jason Hill. My fellow Americans, the most moral, the still freest country on earth, on which millions pin their aspirational identities, and millions more risk their lives crossing borders, trying to escape into, is the most vilified and morally persecuted country on the face of the earth. Enemies of the state of our great republic, pillory, this unprecedented phenomenon that is the United States by calling her an intrinsically bigoted country populated by a mean-spirited people whose main purpose is to plot to destroy the conception of the good life people have carved out and created for themselves. Some of our enemies of the state have declared that we are living in a new form of Jim Crow, a new apartheid that we systemically disenfranchise groups of people and keep them outside the pantheon of the human community. They say capitalism is irredeemably racist and that emancipation of America relies on the abolition of what they call whiteness or the annihilation of white people. Now, this type of swill is uttered by blacks and whites alike who belong to a destructive labor camp known as progressivism. It pains me as a great patriot of this country that few have not only consistently attempted to crush the voices of the enemies of our state, but to proudly stand up for American exceptionalism and American supremacy. Fewer, if any, have attempted to devise, to construct, to articulate the moral meaning of the United States. So let me try to do it. And let me be one who declares that America is the first consciously created moral country in the history of humanity. You know, fighting our enemies is like fighting lice in a vacuum. What we need is an inoculant, a moral vaccine against their lies, against their putrefaction, and the detritus that they offer up as an American credo. I want to share with you a robust and incontrovertible moral meaning of America that fits with the reality, one that I created after 37 years of having had the privilege of living in this great country and observing its heroic and unprecedented people. But really, it was one that I created only after eight years of living in America. What is the definition of America in moral terms, my friends? What is the definitive moral meaning of the United States of America? A meaning that stands above and before its politics. Indeed, a template out of which arose its abiding and guiding political principles? Well, let's find out. This is the Jason Hill Show, and I am Jason Hill. Many of you who have listened to my first podcast and who have read my books are a bit familiar with my background. I emigrated to America from Jamaica as a legal immigrant with $120 in my pocket. And I worked up to three jobs, 45 hours a week, while attending school full-time in Atlanta. And I graduated magna cum laude. And after two years, I worked and paid off some student loans, and then I earned a scholarship, a full scholarship, to earn my PhD in philosophy at Purdue University, where I graduated in 1980, My articulation of the American dream began before I came to America. My understanding of the American dream began before I came to America. I was almost living it vicariously 
but my articulation of the moral meaning of the America of, of America occurred at a time when I was in college studying philosophy and literature, British literature. Now, around this time, I was conversing with a young black American separatist by the name of Tariq. And he believed that America was fundamentally corrupt and inimical to the authentic expression of black agency. He was 26 years old, attending both Morehouse College, a historically black college for, for black men, and he was auditing a few classes at Georgia State University, where I was attending, in order, as he put it, quote, to see how the white man's real indoctrination process was at work, close quote. Now, Tariq was convinced that I and the other immigrants who were making it or who were convinced we were making it would ultimately fail because the white man would eventually take everything we had achieved right out of our mouths. I jokingly reminded him that the Second Amendment was alive and well, and as a defender of it, I'd get a gun and defend my possessions and achievements. Tariq was an endearing fellow. He was soft-spoken and gentle by nature. He was a firebrand, nevertheless, in his convictions. He constantly bought me Afrocentric books, all of which I read with great care and discussed with him respectfully. But he could never decide if he should stop speaking standard English or if he should be speaking Ebonics, since English was the language of the oppressor and had been thrust down his throat and the throats of others. Now, when I told him that Ebonics was non-standardized English and that when he spoke it, <laughs> he sounded like he was trying to communicate in a broken second language, he grew very, very angry. At the very least, I said to him, you need to be bilingual, I told him. And he agonized over Western dress forms, but felt like he'd been an, an imposter if he started donning African garb, especially since none of the African students on campus wore traditional African clothing. They were dressing like Americans. They wanted to be Americans. He professed not to hate white people. He just didn't want to be around them. So he was trying to create a community of like-minded people. Where? He didn't know. How? He had no idea. When? Sometime in the distant future when the right philosophy had taken root. He agonized over the fact that my degree in philosophy was in the Western tradition and that the doctorate I had won a scholarship to pursue had nothing to do with an African philosophic system. Tariq could easily have been a precursor to Tanahisi Coates, for he spoke of the American dream as a moral barometer. Those who attained it were given the moral stamp of approval, and to be given this approval, he was convinced, you had to sell out and play by the white man's rules. The only moral course of action, he explained, was to act in solidarity with all those who could never achieve the American dream and reject it as a bourgeois white construct. Now, what troubled me about Tariq's diatribes were the following. Well, one is that when he spoke to other black students, especially black men, it was not that they relinquished their studies and dropped out of college. It was that Tariq had the power to make them feel ashamed for planning their lives, for believing in and pursuing the American dream. He was able to drive wedges among the best within them and resurrect some shame they thought they ought to feel for their confidence love, and optimism for America. This, this, I decided, was the root of defeatism and one of the signature causes of black failure in America. It was downright pathological. It was not foisted on Tariq by white people. Tariq was on a full corporate scholarship financed by white people, white people who wished him well and who wanted him to succeed. But he saw them as buying his soul for a future installment for services rendered in a society he labeled as a thriving slaveocracy. I can better pronounce the word, you see, because there is really no such word. And when words are made up, it's really hard to pronounce them. So he saw himself as living in a slaveocracy.
No, I rarely debated him, I must say. And I did not try to convince him otherwise. I thought how I and my cadre of immigrant friends and fellow mainstream Black American friends who were also striving for the American dream would simply convince him by example or make him see in reason his errors of cognition. You're a slave in the white man's house, he said to me angrily one evening in the quad, and he's colonized your mind. I simply looked at him without moving or saying anything. And then he hissed these words when I told him that each person ultimately was responsible for his or her own fate. He said to me, You're an, you are an abomination to the black race, a profligate sellout. Now, I thought about the sacred covenant that I had made on the plane coming over to America. I thought about how deeply in love I was with my adopted country and how that love kept growing viscerally and rationally through well-thought-out convictions about the greatness and nobility of this country. I faced Tariq squarely and I said, and you, Tariq, have not just fallen into error, you have irrevocably passed into corruption. With those words, I turned and walked away, and I have never spoken to him again. Tariq had gotten the moral meaning of America wrong, and it was time for me, as I embarked on graduate work in philosophy, to start doing my homework and formulate a conscious understanding of that meaning and its significance to race. So I had been in America back then for eight years. I was 28 years old. I had very, very strong convictions about America that I was formulating on my own over time. These were bargaining ideas that were not coming from books per se, but from my own observations of the nature of the society in which I lived, my deep analyses of its fundamental structure, and conclusions I was drawing from reading details about the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, the Founding Fathers, and what I just took to be the essential nature of America. Now, a few weeks before classes began at Purdue University, I began to consciously formalize and systematize my thinking about race and the moral meaning of America. A friend and I had formed a philosophic group called Think Twice, in which members discussed sundry political topics from a philosophical perspective. I decided that it was time for me to share with the group what I thought the moral meaning of America was and why I thought the concept of race was a betrayal of Americanism. So let me now share with you that moral meaning of America as I devised it. Let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk about the moral meaning of America. You're listening to The Jason Hill Show, and I am Jason Hill. And as I said in the last segment, I've been thinking since my conversation with Tariq, the black separatist, about what the moral meaning of America entailed. And so I declared to my friends in this group, Think Twice, that I was ready to talk about the moral meaning of America. And so race, I declared, starting off, had been endemic to American life from its inception. But race, I contended, was irrelevant to the true spirit of America. Race, like slavery, was a betrayal of the essential moral meaning of America. What I came to realize that was that when people came to America, past and present, they could not adhere to their tribal lineage and ancestral way of life in any substantive way as a means of granting them a moral identity. Immigrants who arrive in America while cosmetically hanging on to their tribal lineage do not in any fundamental sense appeal to tradition, custom, and the old countries as ways of authenticating themselves over time. One lives not by appeal to ancestry, 
but by acts used to ratify the validity and legitimacy of one's personal existence in America, in the here and now. Americans are the first individualists and by design, the first non-tribal people in the world. If a person declares that he can be at home or he can make a home in any civilized place in the world, then the statement presupposes that there is or that there are such places in the world that will accept him into its confines and make him welcome and make him feel at home. So the, the person who makes that statement must have a real home in mind, one to which he may affix his aspirations, hopes, his physical body. And before that declaration can be made, therefore, there must be a political state willing to accept him or anyone who has the audacity to declare, I can live in any civilized country. So we may say that the one state in human history that has inserted itself into the world and the global imagination and offered itself up as a home, a refuge, a place where any person can be welcomed and offered a chance to fulfill any aspiration and goal was and remains the United States of America. Now, today there are other countries, of course, that fulfill this goal, including Canada, France, and Great Britain, Australia. Yet because America was founded as a nation of immigrants, a sort of cosmopolitan melting pot, it has not only provided the seeker with a home, but America has also reversed a trend in political life that has marked human societies since recorded history. And it is this, it has undermined the degree of tribalism at the heart of citizenship, belonging and the notion of community by making all distinctions not just irrelevant, but ethically untenable. This was not always the case in America, but we are a work in progress. And for a long time now, the United States has transformed the moral and the political prism through which we see and evaluate the status of the aspiring citizen by fundamentally changing the way we formulate the moral qualifications and credentials a person must have to become a citizen of our great republic. And the answer, my friends, my fellow Americans, is, of course, nothing but their naked, singular humanity with certain rational qualifiers, such as allegiance to the state, that have nothing to do with tribal affiliation. So America inserted as a non-tribal, unprecedented phenomenon in the world. The United States has achieved what I would call a unique feat of political eugenics. Instead of being an imitator, it is a model for emulation America has detribalized the world. It has detribalized the world by offering itself up as a model, as worthy of universal emulation. It has functioned as an ethical domain in which resocialization of a certain type takes place. People are not explicitly encouraged to relinquish their tribal identities. However, they are made aware of the fact that in the public sphere, those identities carry equal weight with any other as far as the face of their public personalities are concerned, as well as the, their status before the law. Individuals as such hold their tribal identities rather symbolically in America. <clears throat> their moral reasoning may be influenced by their tribal identities, loosely speaking. But this privilege is protected under the freedom to cast their moral lives in tribal affiliation and the conception of the good it may yield, but it cannot trespass on the rights of others. So our conception of the good and even our choices is constrained by a high commitment to subordinate the impulse to impose our conception of the good on others. And this high commitment is what informs justice in the United States of America. It is a publicly shared ethos 
created in what I would call an overlapping consensus among varied conceptions of the good. The wonderful thing about America is that by making foreigners and strangers into Americans, the Republic has de-emphasized the spirit of seriousness grafted onto lineage and blood identity. So the American by birth, or even more so by naturalization, is the expression of a sort of world citizen because what is central to belonging and citizenship are moral purpose, the inviolable freedom to create one's own conception of the good life for oneself, and a moral political commitment to adhere to the fundamental defining principles of the republic, grounded, as it were, in a philosophy of individualism. So explicit adherence to a philosophy of individualism provides a litmus test for how and when one's actions can be exercised in the world against the freedom and rights of another. Individualism and its political corollary in the form of individual rights subordinate society to political laws derived from more laws. And this commitment to the principles of defending individualism and individual rights in a robustly political sense, my fellow Americans, gave birth to the rise of the individual and enacted what the honorable and the ancient Stoics could only have dreamed of, the creation of a Republican polity of a state that could be home to any citizen of the world by formal principle. Now, the revolutionary achievement of the Republic of America was that it reversed a very erroneous idea that had influenced human thinking, the idea that the individual is a human being preceded the state. But the individual, if he's not to live as some type of disembodied abstraction, must have a state in which he can exercise his personality, his character. And also that state cannot be a tribal state, but an open society in which belonging and citizenship are fixed by non-tribal markers and determined instead by universal and fundamental values to which all persons by virtue of being human, can pledge allegiance. So in America, what we have is the birth of a particular political state replete with certain values and fundamental principles that make it even possible to hold an organic and expressive American identity. The American Republic is one that is suffused with values of liberty in order to give a person his declaration of his life, of his conception of his good life, any real traction in the real world. And because as human beings we are relational creatures who build our identities in tandem with one another, the Republican state, though it, though it might have tribal enclaves, I mean, there's little Ukraine and Chicago where I live and there's the Italian neighborhood and, and so on and different places of worship, and we have our own personal associations, it remains fundamentally cosmopolitan since the loyalties, the communities that we belong to do not take precedence over loyalty to the universal republic that give it its moral and political coherence and civic identity. So I want to say that America is the first country to insert itself into the world and really, really offer itself up as a friend to humanity. It's a place where citizens from anywhere can belong and play a, a role in suffusing the nation state with an original assemblage of who they are. America encourages human beings not to search for their origins, really, but rather their destiny. It is the first nation in human history where, in spite of lip service to hyphenated identities that are really purely symbolic, human beings have been driven to flee their origins and make themselves, through a process of evolution, of becoming a new specimen 
a new radically different kind of man or woman. So what's the magic of America that makes this possible? That makes it possible for us to recreate ourselves into something new. We're going to take a short, another short break. And when we come back, we're going to look at this magical aspect of America as part of the moral meaning of United States of America. As we were talking about in the last segment, there's something where Americans flee their origins and make themselves through a process of evolution into a, a new person, a radically new man or woman. And I identify this as a very, uh, I call it a cosmopolitan moment here in America because it lies in the fact that in the search for destiny, a demand is placed upon each individual in his or her interactions with those who are very different from who one is. In that one is forced to revise and modify the stories that construct one's identity. So, you know, they used to have these shows. Remember, they used to have these shows in the 80s and the 90s with um, Sally, Jesse, Raphael, and uh, some of these talk show hosts about radical makeovers where ordinary people would come on the shows and they would put on makeup and different hairstyles. And you'd say, this person's going to have a, a complete makeover, right? Well, identity makeovers are fully possible, I would say, only, only in the United States of America. The social reality that thoroughly suffuses an untouchable's life in India has no counterpart in the United States, a country where most Americans are properly concerned, or unconcerned, I should say, really, with the term and the nefarious caste system it denotes. An untouchable is, a, that is someone who is considered so despicable in India that to touch that person is to be contaminated by that person. So the the untouchable, I met some of these individuals in university at Georgia State. The untouchable lands in America, and she's perceived as South Asian and nothing more or nothing less. Her socioeconomic mobility in America, her associations and her right to forget where she came from are within her powers. The loss of an old identity and the attendant new one she crafts for herself is the gift that America confers on her. The role identity to which she was born is laid to rest. She stands side by side as a doctor with a white doctor at a local hospital somewhere in Nebraska or Boston or New York City. Whereas in her native India, she was stamped with the mark of contamination, closure, fixedness, and social completeness. America grants her the freedom not just to become, not just to evolve, not just to become a, a new radically woman, but to wipe her social slate clean in order to realize her not-yet-self, the self that she aspires to be. It grants her sole jurisdiction over how to interpret her past and modify the stories that add up to who others have told her she was and who she had to remain to the rest of her life. America takes care of all of that. She can become who she wants to become. America grants her a philosophy of life that is itself a disclosure of possibilities. And it is also an exposition of various ways of being a human being. And these ways are the modes of becoming, of evolving that reside in each individual. In fact, they are the features of one's personal identities, one's personal identity, really. And they are the ingredients that allow one the freedom and the privilege to earn one's personal and moral identity. Through the forging of this identity, we make our existence each 
and every moment that we live in America. Unlike life in tribal societies or in the old Europe, America offers no script for the enactment of a free prefabricated socially constructed identity, right? Because in the United States, each person has to earn his life, not only economically, but metaphysically, in the sense that nothing is given except the protection of the right to one's own life and freedom, right or wrong, to create a life in one's own image and for one's own good. In the radical freedom that is America, each human being contains a plethora of destinies and is, in a socially non-restrictive way, a compound of several other human beings that he or she may meet in the streets, in the boardroom, in the hospital, at art galleries, in classrooms of grade schools or universities, at airports or in courtrooms. And in that freedom, one's biologically determinate nature, which commits one to a life of reason and rational behavior, paradoxically condemns one to a wide, infinite range and to ways of evolving, so long as those ways are rational when realized. And what I mean by rational here is that given the local context of one's life, one lives it within the bounds of reason. Because human rational nature had not been properly articulated and embedded within a corresponding political milieu before the advent of the United States, man had always lived as a phase, so to speak, a contingent or a temporary phenomenon whose almost cyclical life would repeat itself like an animal's in the absence of a philosophy for his nature. So in the old world, I would say that the individual had lived by a sort of predetermined script, one that predated his birth and that was overdetermined in that his life was crafted and determined by others who dictated who and what he was going to be before he had a chance or the opportunity to make personal life choices and actions that he could insert his personal, that would allow him to insert his personal meaning in the world. This just wasn't possible. If you were born the son of a, of a mechanic or you were born the son of a, not a mechanic, but if you were born the son of a Freemason or a stonemason, um, you would be become that, that profession. You would inherit that profession, your father's profession, what we call role identity um, or a social identity. Um, so it is by the insertion of your life into the world that the veil of, of obscurity is lifted from your life. And it is by such means that you can construct and understand your personal meaning. And this personal meaning has to be conjoined to a sociopolitical environment so that you can manifest your destiny, so that you can realize your life's goals. And what it means to be a person will involve rationally mapping out ideal possibilities that are realizable along a continuum of achievement. So we find, I think, that before the creation of America, the individual was always stuck in a rigid social identity because the capacity to navigate his environment was always compromised by tradition, by legacy, by norms, by mores, and by systems. The wonderful thing, folks, about America, is, as in any free society, is that traditions are blasted on a daily basis. The individual is free within the bounds, again, of reason to reinvent himself when he so chooses. And the freedom from convention is a new American way since America was born in flight from European conventions and stultifying customs. So America is about the freedom to live by the dictates of one's personal conscience in the name of an individuality that supersedes any state, edict, propaganda, or values. And the freedom from the burden of roots 
and the right to forget where he came from is a free moment for the individual in that it places him in a deeply non-tribal associative relationship with his compatriots. America gave the individual freedom to maintain his local ancestral identity in a very thin manner, but it also altered his sensibilities in relation to the future self that he would become and cultivate. So part of the moral meaning of America, I think, is a spiritual transformation occurs in the act of migration and settling. The distancing of oneself from roots is an act of destroying that to which the individual was born and tethered. And let me say this. The glorious thing about America and part of its moral meaning is that it is the first country that incentivizes the individual to prioritize the future over the past, to forego nostalgia in favor of hope and aspiration. Let me say this again. America, I think, is the first country that incentivized the individual to prioritize the future over the past, to forego nostalgia in favor of hope and aspiration, and in so doing, to keep alive the pulsating energy that vitalizes a nation 24 hours per day, 365 days per year. American symbolic attachment to their genetic or- origins is, is just that. It's purely symbolic, one that gives them some sense of differentiation in the compound noun that is American. Their identities as Americans, however, supersedes any alleged allegiance they have to the country of their ethnic or national origins. More than that, Americans forget where they came from. This sounds a little bit controversial, but Americans forget where they came from in a literal sense. Ties to the ancestral past are at most a nostalgic indulgence with little traction in existential terms. There are very, very few multi-generational Americans who return to their ancestral or ethnic homelands for extended periods of time. Although a lot of Americans pay lip service to being Greek Americans or Italian Americans without having ever visited the country of their ethnic origins and are incapable of speaking the language of the country from which their ancestors came, their socializational spheres are in America, and they're thoroughly American, with very few exceptions. So the foreigner-turned-American does not give the same weight to origins. I can say that the foreigner has fled from his origins, from family, blood, and soil. He may be haunted by his origins. However, it is elsewhere that he sets his hopes. And that is where his struggle takes place. He begins the process of achieving moral maturity and autonomy by cultivating an identity separate and apart from the one he inherited from his parents and or their immediate socialization sphere. We're going to take another break. And when we come back, I want to talk about the stirring in the soul that America elicits in the individual because this is part of the magic of America. I'm Jason Hill, and you are listening to The Jason Hill Show. America creates a stirring in the soul that I think allows even the most ordinary of American human beings to make monumental leaps over generations of traditions and customs. The stirring activates the modes of becoming or the modes of evolution that reside in each individual. But it does more than that. It inspires the best that resides within all of us to recreate ourselves into a stylized work of moral art. We begin the arduous but exhilarating task of what I would call morally thematizing our lives. 
by asking the question and then answering the end and then executing the answer, what do I want my life to add up to? Who do I have to become in order to get to where I want to be? Who do I have to become in order to get to where I want to be? And America gives us answers to that question in the several identity options available to us, many of them centered on friendships, family, and more importantly, productive work. Our evolution unfolds in the drama of stories, and our identity is defined by our fundamental evaluation of those stories. They define who we are and what we want. Now, stories have a moralizing force and provide a frame or a horizon on which we, on which our identities are, are built. And this horizon allows us to determine what is good, what is valuable, what we endorse or what we oppose. And the American experience make you the unique subject of a history that is entirely and uniquely your own, replete with your own distinctive meaning. That's what America allows you to do to achieve the meaning and the purpose of your life, not for anybody else to impose it upon you. United States of America is like no other, and it cannot be because it is lived from the inside, although relationally with other people, because we are parts of communities and our, our identities are constructed, of course, in communities and validated fundamentally by also the imprimatur of your own life. But it is only an unparalleled individualism that marks the uniqueness and the inalienability of your life that here means the inseparability of you from your own existence. You see, going back to the discussion of the old tribal world that um, most Americans historically have escaped from, that is Europe, um, there is interchangeability among the lives of people. Indeed, the logic of tribalism is that each person is a sort of deputized stand-in for any other because he or she bears the authentic tribal marker that every other carries psychically, physically, and psychologically, but not so in America. <laughs> America allows each of us to be the sous-generous sovereign in the world while still forming a social unit within the domain of universal first principles. Universal first principles that permit varied individuals the moral and political freedom to call divergent conceptions of the good lives for themselves, what I would call pluralistic living by means of universal principles. So the paradox here is that individuals are not subordinated to society or to other human beings. Rather, America strives for a balance between what I would call codified public sentiments and conventions and unassailable individualisms. In disputes between how a person should choose regarding prevailing public sentiments and his or her own individual orientation, the ethos of Americanism is that it allows you to choose your conscience. Your conscience. You're not punished for choosing your conscience. And in this respect, we come to understand why America has never had a mob or members of society who could be termed plebeians. While not all persons are geniuses, each harbors a seed of his or her own exceptionality by belonging to a general society in which you do not have to yield to the yoke of convention. Originality in action and thought are what have made America and its people, all of you listening to this podcast, exceptional in fundamental terms, from its dominance in politics entrepreneurship, science, and the arts, to its ability to inspire millions around the world to want to become Americans. Now, of course, this does not mean that everyone chooses to be exceptional, because 
at any given time, an age can collapse into one of enshrined mediocrity and conventionality where exceptionalism and eccentricity are frowned upon and coarseness and vulgarity are taken as norms foisted on an unknowing public. But it does mean, I think, folks, that a culture that nurtures exceptionalism and a culture that does not enshrine mediocrity is one that will inspire people to reach for the best within themselves and share it, to infuse the world with their originality. Heroism and the possibility of ongoing originality are always on the horizon in this great republic of ours for all Americans. The heroic can be impeded by the rule of the mediocrity, but as long as human creativity is granted some small space in the crumbling confines of a culture, it can still function as an incremental installment on the human ascent towards greatness. Mediocrity, like evil, is impotent because it can destroy, but it cannot create anything of, vac of, va of value. But in the vacuum that might be left as a result of decades of rule by the cult of mediocrity and the culture of bankruptcy, some gesture of even muted grandeur rises to fill the void. Such women and men who avail themselves will always halt the full decline of a culture's trajectory towards a precipitous decline. Why? Because their own heroic venturesome quest for solutions will always prevail. America has always been a problem-solving country. That is part of our moral meaning. America has been a, such a country in various ways. That is one coarsened at times by mediocrity and convention, but one fundamentally possessed of exalted heroism and spiritual greatness. In the era of the American Civil Rights Movement, for example, as it was during the Civil War, the moral meaning of the United States was brought into sharp focus by two rival conceptions of humanity, two models for social living, and two differing testimonies to the application of political principles to the problem of human survival. In both cases, in the Civil War and in the Civil Rights Movement, we witnessed social upheaval out of which arose the application of political solutions to solve moral conflicts. New vocabularies did not arise from both conflicts. Rather, existing moral language given to us, bequeathed to us by the founding fathers, right? New moral vocabularies um, did not arise from, from both conflicts. Existing moral language was used judiciously in a particular manner to redress and rectify problems that had lain morally invisible for a long time. So the result of protracted struggles framed and couched in a particular moral vernacular led to a moral, not a political revolution. This means, I think, folks, in concrete terms, that America itself existed as a new method of framing claims of justice by widening the scope of who could be included in the discussions of justice. So the moral grammar of justice had been up for grabs since the inception of the nation and its inheritance of a brutal and grossly moral system of black chattel slavery. And clearly, the plethora of justice claims issued against the state did not initially include slaves and women, or not only, but to a lesser degree, non-propertied white males. But we can see with a degree of historical accuracy that since the creation of America, or the United States of America, the moral grammar had and continues to be on a continuous path towards self-reflective improvement. We are a reform society. And you, all of you listening, are reformed people. No other country has ever included within the domain of the ethical so many units of moral concern during so short a time in its nascent existence 
as in many persons and groups have been in America. Nearly 246 years after its creation, there are no persons or individuals who, on principle, can be excluded from the pantheon of the human community, from the domain of the ethical and the domain of justice. Now, I think it is safe to say that part of the moral meaning of the United States lies in its ever-widening pantheon of inclusiveness. This country of yours, this first immigrant country in history, this country of ours, I should say, because it's my country too, is predicated on civic nationalism, which means it includes the membership principle, but transcends it in that persons beyond its shores, such as immigrants and stateless people and victims of political and economic oppression, are welcome and invited into the United States to seek more than just ameliorative and reparative status in the Republic. They achieve what I would call restitution of their moral agency and the acquisition of a political personality. They enter a Republic with an exit clause that does not penalize them for exiting its borders, and the restitution of their moral agency means that they can partake in a plethora of experiments in living and create or discover for themselves an endless assortment of conceptions of the good life. This is America, where a third founding, taking Lincoln's promise at Gettysburg and the Civil War as a second, was achieved in the Civil Rights Movement and the momentous passage of the 1964 Act, Civil Rights Act. The inclusive promise of we the people was finally delivered to all peoples in this country. And the formal debt owed to black people for centuries of enslavement and inexcusable mistreatment and exclusion from mainstream society was paid. America has always been a place of regeneration, renewal, and self-examination. A place where peoplehood is not a given or a smug achievement, but rather a long, long, continuous aspiration. There are reasons why, in fundamental terms, the true moral narrative of this country bends itself to accommodate the shape of who I am at the core. It makes me a co-author in the narrative, in the script of who I wish to become. And that script becomes part of the identity of America. There is a reason why Matilda, the maid from Africa or Mexico or Jamaica, pressed as she might feel by a dominant class structure in her native country, can flee the hermetically sealed nature of those systems and come to America. Now, there's a reason why boatloads of peasants from Haiti and Cuba and other countries have risked their lives in makeshift rafts and leaky boats to seek hope and a better way of life here in America. These people are largely black people. America gives all of them a space to negotiate its ongoing moral narrative. And that's the reason why the Dalit from India, who has no empowering, by Dalit I mean the untouchable, no empowering narrative in his own country, can come to find an empowering one, one that he co-authors. Matilda, the despised African maid in her hometown, Dinesh, the dirty, untouchable in India, they all come to America and are given a clean slate. They're made to feel clean and worthy of being someone. America is a washboard that gives them a makeover. It does not penalize them for their roots and past and hold them hostage to their lineage. So America was the first country to make the world, or it's the first country rather in the world, to make a Dinesh, the untouchable, possible to reverse the accidents of his birth from a tragic state of affairs and transform him and his life into a thriving new beginning. Why? Because America as a republic was always a different kind of political configuration in which the traditions and baggage of customs of the old tribal ways stifle the creative possibilities of evolution, of becoming and the emergent selves that laid buried under mounds of dead-weighted and lifeless anti-life forces 
which were not allowed to exist in the new country. America was and remains an inspiring command to the Dineshes and the Matildas of the, of the world to forget, in a sense, where they came from. That is, to refrain from treating their inherited social identities with invariability of a law of nature. And those social identities were temporary. They were very temporary. They were ones that had to be modified if one were to have the freedom and confidence to forge one's way in America and to see everyone as one's equal. We'll take our final break, and when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about the continued moral meaning of America, the magic that is America that gives us a chance to reverse the accidents of birth. All of us as Americans, whether we're foreigners or born in America, America gives us the chance to wipe clean that slate, that accident of birth, and make ourselves into who we wish to become. It provides an answer to the question, who do I have to become in order to get to where I want to be? This is Jason Hill, and you're listening to The Jason Hill Show. I think America gives each and every one of us a chance to have, to use a big word, a metaphysically clean slate. If one wants to be clean and physically robust and healthy, there is no other nation, no other nation allowed individuals to play this role of a god in their lives. Because that's what we get to play. America gives us the chance to play god in our lives by grafting a political milieu that would permit them to transform their lives in accordance with their conscience and moral imaginations. One of the things I really like about Americans is that they really don't care where you come from and who you are in terms of your background in fundamental terms. They do care who you are becoming and the future horizon over which you will spread your ever-evolving identity. In other words, Americans don't care where you came from. They care more about your destination, where you're heading. So this is the principal feature of American individualism. America works. She works for all her people on the most general level because of this all-pervasive commitment to individualism and to the individual as an individual but she also works because America is an assimilationist country. It encourages assimilation. And a country that encourages assimilation is one that is fundamentally not predicated on a logic of cont contagion and contamination. It is not one that seeks to inoculate itself from sensibilities of foreigners and their alleged strange ways. So the idea that America is intrinsically bigoted and racist. There have been periods in American history where America behaved in a unfashionably anti-American racist way. But this is not the case. Uh, this is an America where we must not forget that it was in 1903 at Ellis Island that immigrants arriving to this magnificent nation were greeted by a copper statue, the Statue of Liberty, whose pedestal bears the words of Emma Lazarus, quote, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses bearing, yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these the homeless tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. So I would say that no country in fundamental terms believes in the inherent evil and the corruptibility and the contagion of the foreigner would issue such an important and open invitation to peoples of the world. Now, the spirit of, in the, of the invitation was broken by the lowest within the worst who call themselves Americans. But the essence of that invitation came in a clarion call for peoples of all types to reborn into a new type of man or a new type of woman the American man and the American woman. 
And what do we do as Americans fundamentally? What is the moral moment, the ethical moment that exists? What's the way that we come close as possible to showing love to strangers as Americans to each other? I would say that we genuflect before the other in a spirit of reciprocity, in respectful brotherhood and sisterhood. And we say in our exchanges, whether it's on a bus, on a train, in the supermarket line, we say, I am not so complete that I can resist handing over to you some part of my continued socialization and identity formation as a human being. With you, my friend, my humanity, regardless of its origins, continues to expand and will take me to places I could never have imagined. As I, as I said, it's a deeply genuflective moment in which we come, to, we come as close to loving each other as strangers as is humanly possible. And I also think that one says further in the genuflection, we share a common humanity. And in the spaces of that sacred humanity, something of the divine is achieved. I open myself as a canvas on which you may inscribe your wisdom, teachings, and generosity, or whatever seeds of it you may have discovered in your own soul. This country that allows you to genuflect before it and which receives the genuflection in a spirit of reciprocity and openness is the first non-tribal and universal nation on the face of the earth. My fellow Americans, we as Americans do not constitute a tribe. Our principles are universal ones, always have been and always will be. They seek to attract people who will contribute to the dynamism of a resplendent future. And those same people seek to enhance the God-instilled dignity and moral worth that each person possesses by virtue of being a human being. In the genuflection that I described, which in some sense is metaphoric and in some sense is literal, we honor those who aspire to personal transformation achieved through conjoining their labor with reason, hard work, and self-reliance. We honor the venturesome and disciplined individual whose form formidable will, working in tandem with those of others in the name of mutual respect for their rights and liberties, can emancipate all of us from an oppressive history we might have been born into. And friends, this is because ordinary Americans have never, ever fetishized history, nor preached historical determinism. You arrive on her shores and you make up your life what you dream and imagine and believe it ought to be. And finally, my friends, I believe that if you fail in that enterprise, the responsibility must lie with you. You must pick yourself up. You must look America in the face, acknowledge her, and move into her essence. That core, that core essence is not an enclosing, binding fortress, but a boundless frontier. You must walk quietly into the frontier and calmly, with your palms open, facing the universe as you did innocently at 16, but with the dedication of a loyal soldier, the perseverance of a martyr, and the heroic commitment of a saint to your cause. You hold the inviolability of your spirit and the exceptionalism of your country as a unified sacred catechism to which you pay homage as you take your step-by-step -step journey into America. I have fallen quite a few times in my journey through the American landscape as I traverse the paths towards my goals. I have picked myself up and I have looked towards the frontier. Not once 
has America ever disappointed me. The Jason Hill Show is a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center and Front Page Magazine. Unauthorized reproduction of this podcast without express written consent is prohibited.